Welcome to Episode 1, Part 1 of Emergency Medicine Operations Management, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 7,000 emergency physicians committed to board certification and democratic group practice. In this month's podcast, Dr. Joseph Gorisco, chair of the AAEM Operations Management Committee, speaks with Dr. Tom Scaletta, past president of AAEM, about patient satisfaction. Well, I'm Joe Garisco. I'm chairman of the Operations Management Committee for AAEM, and I'm honored to introduce the first in a series of podcasts we hope to do talking about operations management issues. Further honored today to honor our first guest, which is Dr. Tom Scaletta, who is past president of AEM and currently the chair and medical director at Edward Hospital in Naperville, Illinois, outside of Chicago. Tom has a keen interest in patient satisfaction and more importantly, executes on patient satisfaction and at a very high level. So we're, we're great to have him on as our first guest. So Tom, I'd like to have you say anything more about yourself if you want and, and tell us how you got interested in patient satisfaction. Sure, that was a great introduction. Thank you very much. I've been interested, I would say, for probably going on my second decade and primarily because I've worked in emergency departments as medical director for about that period of time and it's always an expectation that the medical director will bring a high level of satisfaction given the resources that are made available to him or her. So that's probably why I focus on it. It's in that capacity primarily. And to me, I think it is part of excellence in emergency medicine, having a great patient experience, not just making the right diagnosis and giving the right medications and making the correct disposition. It's doing all that and having a patient that is just thrilled to have gone to your emergency department. Right. So, you know, before we get started on trying to figure out how we make a case for patient satisfaction and, and how we improve it, we probably should talk about how people measure it. I think just to create a baseline here is to, you know, how do people measure patient satisfaction? And w- once we establish that metric and how we measure it, we could talk about how we impact it. But uh, what are the ways to measure patient satisfaction, just first of all? Well, the traditional way to measure patient satisfaction by hospitals is using paper surveys. And the largest provider is Prescani. And I would say that that is primarily what the C-suite is looking at. They're looking at their Prescani scores or whichever vendor they use. They are doing enough of a sampling to get a rough cut for that particular service line, so the emergency department for our listeners and looking at how your emergency department compares to similar emergency departments across the country, similar in terms of demographics and volume and that sort of thing. So there are many many other ways to measure. It can be non-scientific. You can just see if, generally speaking, that the community appreciates the service that's delivered, and you can see that in how they respond with letters and whether they're complaint letters or praise letters, whether you're drifting volume to a competitor or gaining volume from a competitor, that sort of thing. 
there are much more sophisticated ways to measure, which is something that I've been involved with for about 17 years, which is trying to get information from each and every patient that is discharged from the emergency department for a variety of reasons, but that includes to measure their experience or satisfaction. What I'm alluding to is patient recontact, and that's something that relates to my interest in satisfaction when I when I first became a medical director. So if you want, I can tell a quick story where I was hired to direct an emergency department in an urban hospital that was really doing poorly. It was a reasonable neighborhood. They had good resources in terms of staffing. It was a hospital that was nicely presented to the community, but satisfaction, I would say, would be in the lower quartile. And that was why there was likely a change of leadership. And my charge coming in the door was to change that, to improve it. And that's when I came up with the concept of reaching out to patients to check on their well-being. And we used a callback clerk, scripted. And that, over time, I believe was primarily responsible for us to go up to the top quartile in satisfaction. And that original program was actually written up as a best practice by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And I think that was just a great way to satisfy patients by checking on their well-being, but also to gather information so that each and every provider was measured. And through measurement, I think you gain improvement. Right. I want to get back to this toward the end of the interview, but I do want to put this out there. I know people react increasingly emotionally about press gainy and that it's not really measuring patient satisfaction, that ends are small, there's a delay in patient response. And so it's it's not well connected to the actual patient encounter in an adequate way. So I know there's some other possible ways of doing this and we'll come back to that. I want to probably close out on some innovations that are out there to look at patient satin in a better way. But I didn't want to go much further without letting the audience know that we agree there are issues with our current way of measuring patient satisfaction, but it doesn't take away from the need to talk about it. But we'll talk about those innovations a little bit later. I want to find out in your mind, I think you've established that it's important. I know there's a business case for it, but what do you think the key drivers of patient satisfaction are? Patients, they value a few things, just like any customer in any, any other business. We think the drivers are that drive patient satisfaction. And we'll come back and talk about how we measure it again later. Sure. You know, really, we're talking about perception when we talk about patient satisfaction. But to me, that still becomes objective when it is measured and we figure out what the patient is looking for. So while it is somewhat subjective, aspects of satisfaction that patients are looking for, I think, fall neatly into what is called the five C's of satisfaction. Okay, so there's communication, and this is unbelievably important. So a patient that, for instance, has a whiplash injury that isn't told that they're likely going to have more pain the next day and then get better, might be dissatisfied when they return to the ER, pay another copay, and then another physician tells them that. And there's all sorts of other examples where better communication leads to satisfaction. There's convenience, and this is basically making it easy to park, to come in, to see a physician quickly, and get their 
medications on the way out and that sort of thing. There's confidence, so they have to perceive that the doctor and the nurse applied their knowledge and training to them in a way that led to excellent treatment. Comfort, so that's across the board. They don't want to be cold. They don't want it to be noisy if they have a migraine, et cetera. And then I think the most important one is caring. And this is sort of a synonym of empathy. And to me, it's if a patient accepts that you're competent, for instance, did you apply your competence to their situation? Did you really listen? And did you focus in on what their concerns were? And when they believe that you have achieved that and the other sees, I think that you will undoubtedly have created a great patient experience. Right. I think Presganey has done, bringing Presganey back in, they have done some interesting research. And when they do word searches on patient satisfaction commentary and responses, there are three words that come most frequently. And they are the C words, is caring, compassion, and concern. So when you think about those are the three things that patients value most. I'm always amazed that it's so difficult for organizations and departments to achieve great patient satisfaction because those are things that, if we understand, should be achievable. It's things we should deliver to the patient every day. But it's amazing how difficult that seems to be. But it does come down to pretty simple, basic emotions, caring, concern, and comfort. So I agree. It's not always appreciated at that level. Right. And I think some emergency departments operate under duress. And so the providers struggle just to get to the main things, which is nobody dies during my shift when death is preventable. And and so they are running ragged. And that is something that makes it almost impossible to be caring and comforting and that sort of thing when you really haven't been cared for or comforted yourself with basic resources. Yeah, I think you're right. At our organization here at Auctioner in New Orleans, I can kind of relate to that. You know, pre-Katrina, we were, as you have been at Edwards for so long, above the 90th percentile patient sat. We were in that same position for nearly 18 consecutive quarters, and then Katrina hit, and it pretty much destroyed healthcare in New Orleans. And we struggled. We sort of lost our focus, and our goal was survival, just making sure patients got taken care of, and our patient satisfaction plummeted. So I think you're right. Patient satisfaction is achievable, but you have to make sure that the environment in the ED is conducive to workflow, smooth operations, and that people can actually exhibit those characteristics that drive patient satisfaction. But we have to provide our colleagues with an environment that supports those interactions. I don't want to take away and say that you go out there and just be nice when you're struggling with volume and demand that doesn't seem to be resourced adequately. We do have other objectives that support the goal of good patient satisfaction. Right, and largely some of the things that make a big difference to patients are not expensive and they are pretty much always there. So you can always listen and focus and do your best to apply your knowledge to that patient and in a way that the patient really appreciates that. I would say that there's a big role for leadership in making satisfaction happen, whatever your resources are. So in any kind of environment, you will have a continuum of performance. And I think that what leaders ought to do, there are some people that just simply complain over and over. Now, there may be valid complaints, and of course, 
the goal is to improve and address anything that can be improved upon. But largely, there's a constant drone, okay, whether we're talking about narcotic-seeking patients that make it impossible and that sort of thing. And at a certain point, I think leaders have to tune that out or let people know, look, if you have a constructive idea that we can put into place to improve things, great. But to come up with 10 reasons why you can't satisfy a patient is probably not going to work anymore when others are able to do it. And then the converse of that is that when people do a great job with satisfaction, I think that has to be echoed publicly and become an important part of department meetings and that sort of thing. So when the leadership sends the message that they will try to fix problems, but they will not listen to a drone of complaints and they want to really publicly acknowledge the high performers, you'll start to see change happen. And really, again, we're talking about simple things. Maybe it's just sort of a new culture that we are going to care about what our patients think of us. And we're going to bring sort of a civil setting. Patients, you know, in some settings may not be seen in five minutes, but everybody gets treated with respect. That applies to doctor-nurse relationships as well, because when there's struggles there, that oozes out and patients see that. So I think real leaders are going to send that message. And then the providers that are going to be sticking around in our new era of value-based medicine are going to be the ones that can adapt to that change. Right. So I don't want to go too far without acknowledging to the audience that I know you've achieved 99% patient satisfaction at Edward for a long time now. And so you touched on some of these things, but I think it's important to hear in maybe a less general way, but in a more specific way, how have you done that? I think that's you know, we have you on the podcast because you're doing something unique. And if I asked you this question before, and I know you have a very good answer for it, but tell us what you've done at your facility. What do you think is the key driver to getting to 99% patients that quarter after quarter? That's not easy to do. And I want to hear maybe specifically what you've done as a leader. I know you've talked about it in general, but tell me, how do you do it? Sure. So let me start with a construct, and then we'll get to some very specifics. And I like this one. It's from a gentleman named Noriaki Kaino, who is a Japanese quality expert. And he comes up with a service trichotomy, three different aspects of service. And it applies to any industry, but we'll focus on the emergency department. And so each service is either fulfilled or not fulfilled. So the first is ordinary Ordinary example there might be if somebody comes in with a strep throat, they're diagnosed with a strep throat, treated with an antibiotic. If you fulfill that service need, your satisfaction is not going to go up because that's a basic ordinary expectation. Okay, so so first you have to nail all the ordinary expectations. You know, if you can't do that, then there's some serious problems with the emergency department. The next is differentiable service items. So this relates to turnaround times. And we know that you know a key driver of satisfaction is time to get into a room and especially time to see a physician and then overall turnaround time to get all your testing done and that sort of thing. Okay, so differentiable service aspects can really show how an emergency department can improve. So as you reduce your turnaround times, you have a real opportunity to go from sort of a situation that is 
not satisfying to one that is highly satisfying. And it goes sort of linearly up the ladder as you reduce your turnaround times. So that, for instance, at Edward Hospital is something that we've accomplished. Our average time to see a doctor is, I think, 12 minutes currently. And I think that's really important. And then the last in this trichotomy is extraordinary service. Extraordinary service is completely unexpected and truly unnecessary. In other words, you can have an excellent patient encounter and they can be satisfied because you've seen them quickly, but it wasn't truly extraordinary until something happens that the patient was really not expecting and is thrilled about. So there, I would say that it often relates to how they were treated. So you were really empathetic. You addressed all their needs. You create complete transparency, for instance. They know what they're up against. So we're not afraid to tell them, even though our average time to a physician might be 12 minutes, today it's 60 minutes because it's an unexpectedly busy day, but it's very transparent and we're focused in on our concern about that. Other things might be, you know, for instance, valet parking, just staff going above and beyond is primarily the extraordinary experience that patients sometimes don't expect when they go to an emergency department. So that's how Kano divides it up. And I would say that Edward has an edge because thankfully we are staffed appropriately to have exceptional turnaround times, although not staffed to a level that is unsustainable. You know, there's sort of a sweet spot where you, if you add more staffing, then you lose in other ways because there's only so many resources, but there's a cost of staffing, there's a cost of waiting, and uh, that has to be analyzed for the department. We have a very nice environment relating to you know the convenience and comfort aspects that patients are looking for. I would say that the primary thing that we have, which is what a lot of satisfaction experts talk about, is truly a culture of caring. That is probably the number one reason that we can be successful with our goal, which is top levels of satisfaction. I think you're right. I think when you speak of patient satisfaction in general and then get more specific, you come back to the generalizations, which is patients want timely, efficient care. And then when they get that care, they want it with caring and concern. They don't give us any credit for making the right diagnosis or just prescribing the right medication. They kind of feel that's given. So it's hard to beat those expectations, you know, making the right diagnosis. It is or it isn't. So they don't give you any credit for the right diagnosis. It's really tough to sort of beat that expectation. The expectation to beat is just as you said, it's timely, efficient care in an environment that's conducive to comfort and there's great concern for the patient. And so it gets, again, it always amazes me that it is pretty simple, but amazingly so difficult to achieve at times. But I think you're right. I think those are the, the key components of patient stat. But I'm interested in what's the method of getting people to that point. And at Oxner, we do a patient stat incentive. We have 5% of our compensation that's tied to patient stat. And I don't know if you're doing that or not, but how do you get people engaged at the nursing level and the staff level, the physician level? Do you think incentives are there? Is it all about leadership? Do you have to tie in compensation to patient SAT? You can tie in compensation, and it depends on the philosophy of the department. So at Edward Hospital, we actually do not tie in compensation. In the hospital I was prior, we did. And I'll explain sort of both models. At Edward Hospital, 
there is an expectation that everybody working there is going to excel in connecting to the patient and doing a great job in that regard. It is non-negotiable. So when I hire a physician, we make it really clear that if you want to take this job, you will be measured. There will be an expectation that you are going to perform at a very high level. If you fall short, we will provide resources to help you. And that includes personal coaching that our department will actually invest in. If it turned out that with professional coaching and good feedback that you were still completely unsuccessful, it probably would not be a good fit and you probably wouldn't be continuing to work at Edward Hospital. And that's really the only way that you can achieve that. It has to be a non-negotiable expectation, at least at our hospital it is. Other places, including where I thought we had a very successful program, it was a more challenging environment to staff. Okay, so there's three attributes of a great emergency physician or emergency nurse. One is your ability to nail a diagnosis and to do the right thing medically. That's always non-negotiable. Number two is your speed. And in a tougher environment, that is something that really you need to select for. And then oftentimes in a tougher environment, the last is your performance with regards to satisfaction. That might be the one that you're given the most flexibility on. So it just sometimes depends on the environment. In, in my prior leadership position, we incented docs both on their speed, you know, patients per hour. We actually had a more sophisticated way to look at it, which is more workload units per hour, essentially the same thing, and then satisfaction. And your bonus compensation was based on those aspects. And I think there, if you're going to do a productivity model, you know, an incentive model, it has to be a big enough piece that is on the incentive side of things. So I would say at a minimum, your base might be 80 and at a minimum, 20% would be salary that's dependent on performance. And then that 20%, the spread has to be wide. So your lowest performers are getting pretty much zero. Your highest performers are getting 40%, if that makes sense. So the difference in annual salary is significant. And that helps select people out. So if they're only getting the base, they may think, well, this might not be a place where I, I want to stick around. And certainly the ones that go above and beyond through personal effort or talent are rewarded appropriately. And I think that that's a great model. Yeah, I agree. Just to elaborate on that, at Oxner, our incentives are worth about 20% of our compensation and half of that incentive is patient sat. So it's it's significant, but sometimes I wonder if it's big enough and, and that alone doesn't always get us to where we need to be because there are other constraints like door to dock. So it's a challenge always but it is the model we have in place. So I was thinking of the business case, one business case and one non-business case for, for doing better in patients that and, and see what you think. You know, after I've been practicing for 30 years, I know you've been out there a while too, and making the right diagnosis at some point in your career doesn't always get to be the most enjoyable aspect of the practice. It's really about beating patients' expectations on service and all the other things that they value. And I find that to be a big thrill when we beat patients' expectations on time to see a physician and the degree of concern and caring and comfort that they experience is really a thrill 
to see patients because in a modern ED, they don't expect that. So that's one angle I think I try to teach is that it's fun. The second thing is that I guess contracts are competitive, and if the group's success is tied to the individual physician's success in patient sat, then the business case is uh, someone who's not delivering on patient sat is risking the group's contract, and that's a huge incentive. This concludes part one of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this production from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. To listen to part two, to learn more about AAEM, and to access the resources mentioned, please visit our website at www.aaem.org. While you're there, be sure to check out the AAEM blog, part of AAEM Connect, where you can leave comments and engage in a conversation around the issues discussed in this podcast. Join us again next month as the AAEM Operations Management Committee We'll discuss more issues of relevance to emergency physicians.